You're listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org. Years ago, uh, there's a radio guy named Paul Harvey. Some of you guys might be familiar with Paul Harvey. He had a knack for telling a story and kind of getting you to really dig into it, really listen up. He had a lot of tapestry, I'd call it. He just would draw you in. And then he would get close to the end of the story, and he would kind of take a little bit of a shift. And then right before he was going to wrap this up, he would say, and now the rest of the story. Anybody familiar with that one? It's like as if he was had to say, I got more to say about this. And he wanted to get the listener to really listen up because there's going to be details and things that we need to hear better and that we need to pay attention to. I think Jesus similarly does this. When he's, you're going, you see what's happening in the previous chapter to uh, what we're getting into in our text here. There's some things that are happening. And then Jesus gets to the end of 19 and he's going to have more to say in this parable. If there's only a few things that I would want you to get from the lesson today, I want you to listen up right here. Here they are. There's four things I want you to get from this parable. Serving God is a tremendous privilege. Number one, serving God is a tremendous privilege. Number two, God's grace is extraordinarily awesome. It's mind-blowing. And number three, God does for, uh, what, does for us what we cannot do. God does for us what we cannot do. And God's grace is abundant and generous. That's the main point of this parable. But before we get into that parable, we're going to take off from where Justin left off and back up into chapter 19. So find that place in your Bible and follow with me real closely. You know, Justin talked about last week about forgiveness and how God's exceedingly abundant forgiveness is an example to us of how we need to forgive. It has to be a way of life for us. So we shift the scene to chapter 19, and we observe three, at least three approaches to Jesus and essentially the kingdom of heaven. That's what these parables are about. Their parables are about the kingdom of heaven, about how, what the kingdom of heaven is about in so many ways, that it's a treasure. We talked about that several weeks ago, that it's a growing, it's a thing that is growing that will not be stopped. And here we run into three different approaches to people in their interactions with Jesus. First, we have the Pharisees who only, their only thing is they want to do is trap him. They're trying to discredit Jesus. They want to make it look like he's not who he says he is. And then we have the little children who come to him in humility. And then finally towards the end of this chapter, we have the rich young man who wants to earn his way into the kingdom or he wants to get in on his own merits. He wants to get on his own abilities, what he can do. Now, just as Jesus left Galilee, he is entering the region of Judea. So Jesus is leaving Galilee, and he's heading to Judea. This is wrapping up his ministry. We're getting into the end of it. He's headed towards Jerusalem. He's going towards Jerusalem. We know, do you know what he faces when he goes to Jerusalem? He's already, the, sh- the shadow of the cross is right there. We're headed to, he, Jesus is going to Jerusalem to be crucified. It says it in uh, Matthew 20, 
17 to 19, he will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes and be condemned to death as he is flogged and crucified by the Gentiles. Jesus knows this road that he's on and where it's going. He knows where it's going. And during this journey, he's heading into, we're heading into chapter 19. There's large crowds around him. He's healing these people. He's, he's doing all kinds of miracles. And it, here come the, here's the Pharisees. You got, picture this. He's got miracles going on, and he's healing people, and the Pharisees want to trap him. I mean, look what the guy's doing. I, you, sometimes you go, like, what, what are these guys even thinking? So they want to trap him. They question him about divorce. And I'm not going to get into that right now. That's not what this parable is about. But they want to question him about divorce. And of course, Jesus, you, you can't trap Jesus. He, he knows the answer. He, know, he takes him right back to the law. They're jealous. That's what it is. It comes down to, you go, you go, what is it with these Pharisees? We know there's one Pharisee who, isn't, who actually came to Jesus by night. We know about Nicodemus, who saw that he was doing, Nicodemus saw that Jesus was doing these things, but he recognized him. Only a man, only someone come from God can do this, but not these guys, not these guys. They want to trap him. These Pharisees want to trap him, and I'm wondering why the Pharisees want to trap him, and I came up, there's a couple reasons, I think. First of all, they were jealous of Jesus, because people followed him. Large crowds followed him. He was healing. They, he was doing things that they could not do. They didn't have a lot of people following him. They didn't have a lot of people following the Pharisees. He couldn't heal. They weren't healing people. What they were doing was laying heavy burdens on people. We read about that throughout the scriptures, that they're laying heavy burdens on people. But Jesus is lifting heavy burdens. Interestingly, we also read about their jealousy. I was, I'm sorry, I, let me back up a minute. So it's just supporting that scripture on their jealousy. Take, Jesus said, take my yoke upon you. I am gentle and lowly. You will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy as my, and my burden is light. So they looked on the Pharisees looked on this, all these things that Jesus was doing, and all they could come up with be, was with being jealous because Jesus exposed them also. They looked, uh, they looked good on the outside. Jesus says you are like wa- whitewashed tombs, but on the inside you are filthy. So the fact is that the Pharisees wanted to discredit Jesus because all they want to be great in the kingdom, they want to be great and known they just didn't want to follow the one who was great, the one who could get them there. They were looking for a way to the truth. While the truth was looking right at them, the truth was right before them, they were looking right at the truth and life and flat out rejected them. Contrarily, you have the children that come to Jesus. And they are brought to Jesus so that he can place hands on them and pray for them. This is interesting to me. So Jesus just talked about divorce. He answered all the questions about divorce. And then the children are brought to him. It just occurs to me that those that are hurt the most by divorce 
are the next ones that are brought to Jesus. And, uh, and some of you know what kind of is going on in our life right now, and that weighs heavy. This weighs real heavy on us. <sighs> and so Jesus is laying hands on them and praying for them. He says, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for such as belongs the kingdom of heaven. What was different about the children than the Pharisees is pure straight up forward humility. That's the only way we can come to Jesus is in our humility, in our humbleness. It says in James 4, 6, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Like children, if when we come to Jesus, if we recognize we have nothing to offer, children have nothing to offer, that attitude, that humility is what we got to come to Jesus with. It says in Matthew 18, 3, Truly I say to you, Unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Mercy is given to those with childlike faith. It is the humility that children often have that enables them to come to Jesus. And I don't know about you, but I can, I can think about when I came to faith in Christ. I didn't come in there thinking I had something to offer. That is not what drew me to Christ, saying, I got something to bring to you, Christ. I recognized where I was at. I recognized that I had nothing, that I was deplete, that I was empty. I was helpless. There's this helpless, simple faith, recognizes total dependence on God, and that apart from Jesus, apart from God, we can do nothing. We can't even come to faith in him without his spirit moving in our lives. And that's what he told, Jesus told Nicodemus. You must be born again. It's the spirit that reveals truth to you. It's the spirit that brings you to Christ. We must recognize our total dependence on God. Nothing we have, not even if we are rich, do we have anything to offer God. Not even if we have achieved the American dream do we have anything to offer God. The rich man, in the next part of this verse, finds that out quickly. He says to Jesus, what must I do? What must I do, good teacher? He's recognizing he's a good teacher. Jesus says to him, why do you call me good? Only God is good. So he's recognizing this guy's got a certain, that Jesus has a certain quality of God. He's recognizing that. He's recognizing him. This must be, there must be something to this guy. But he wants to know what must I do to enter into eternal life. I just told you, there's nothing you can do. And Jesus is going to show him that real quick. He says, Jesus says to him, we must keep all the commandments. Keep the commandments. He says, which ones? Like he's got all of them, right? He's going to have them, but he's going to say which ones. But he talks, what he does, what Jesus explains to him is the ones that we can see. He says, the external ones anyways, murder, adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. What must I do? Do these things. Apparently the young man thought, in some ways, that he had it kind of nailed down. He thought, he thought that he had those down. He said, well, these things I've done. 
I got it. I'm just like you, Jesus. I got this nailed down. He says, one thing you lack. One thing you lack. Just one thing. Sell everything that you have and give it to the poor. Boom. Got him. Nailed it. He put his finger right on it. That's the one thing, that's the one stumbling block that this rich young ruler had. Question is, it may not be riches for us. We might want to question, what is it that keeps me from following Jesus? What is it that keeps me from going all in? What keeps me from being sold out for the kingdom? What keeps me from making it the treasure that we read about and that we learned about a few weeks ago? What is your major stumbling block? Listen, one's riches and accomplishments will not give you access to the kingdom of heaven. It is the recognition of your lack that can bring you to the presence of King Jesus. Your recognition of lack. We not only sin, we are sinners. That is who we are. Our lack is we cannot fix that without the Spirit moving in our lives. And then Jesus goes further into this. As he tells the rich ruler, the rich young man, this, to sell everything, the rich young man was sad because he had great treasures. He had great possessions. He had many things. And they kept him from seeing the one thing he needed the most. And Jesus said, he was speaking to the disciples, he said, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Then the disciples got the question, well, who can be saved? Who then can be saved? You can't obviously get a camel through the eye of a needle. Who can he, who, this is impossible. And Jesus sta- states to them, with man, this is important, with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. The salvation of man is totally, 100%, totally, unequivocally, without a doubt, dependent on God's mercy and grace. It's dependent on him, all God, all Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not of your own doing. Nothing that you do can get you to the cross. Nothing you can do can bring you into the kingdom of heaven. Nothing you can do is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that, n- not a result of works, so that no one may boast. That's Ephesians 2, 8, 9. So then, mercy is given to those with childlike faith. Childlike faith. Not childish faith, but childlike faith. It is humility that children often have that enables them to come to, the, to, come to Jesus, to come to Christ. One's riches and accomplishments will not give you access to the kingdom of heaven. It is the recognition of your lack 
that can bring you to King Jesus. And God does not owe anyone salvation. I don't want what I got coming to me. I don't want to be treated fairly. I want the grace and mercy. God does not owe anyone salvation because of something we do or how hard we work or how good we think we are. But God's grace is the substance of our salvation. And that ends at the end of this. Well, let me back up a second. We let the, the disciples say, well, we left everything to follow you. We've left everything to follow you. And Jesus says, the point what Jesus is going to make here, you may have left everything and you think you, you get more coming to you, but I tell you the truth, uh, you, it is a hundredfold. Your reward is a hundredfold. You, whatever you lose here on earth, whatever you don't think you're getting here on earth, whatever you're thinking you're doing without and you're, because you're following Jesus, if it's because you're following Jesus, the reward is a hundredfold. And then he ends this section, this section of Scripture in 19. But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. So we're going to learn that there's no first place, medals, because mercy and grace makes it all equal. And now the rest of the story. For the kingdom of heaven is like, for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers. So you got these workers, you got all these workers. The first ones he makes a deal with. You're going to get a denarius a day. Made me think they were going to work more days when I when I was reading that, a denarius a day. So maybe they would have to work more days, but we're going to deal with today, right now. So they're going to get a denarius a day, and they agree to that. And then there's so much work to do out in this field. He comes back at 9 o'clock in the morning. He comes back at noon, and he comes back at 3 o'clock. And then he comes back at the last hour, and he goes to these guys and hires them for the last hour of work. And he tells every one of these guys, I'll give you what's fair. The first ones, he makes a deal of a denarius a day. Now, a denarius is a, is a fair wage. It's not like, there's no, it's not like our 335 an hour minimum wage that I used to get. Now, does that seem crazy, 335? What are they getting nowadays? 15? I don't know. <laughs> Jeez, oh, peach. I was just happy to get a job, you know what I mean? But now, Jesus is moving into this, and he's giving, makes a deal with the first guys, a denarius a day. That's the same as a Roman soldier makes, by the way. So then in verse 8, um, it, we get into the time it comes to pay, and it surprises a few people. Surprises many people, actually. The foreman begins to pay from the last. So they, now he's breaking another thing. So you know how it is when you get in line, it's first come, first served? He's going to even do the pay backwards. He's going to give the last people pay first, the ones who got there, the, la uh, the last ones. They're getting paid first. And he gives them a denarius. That's 12 times more than they probably expected. Can you imagine you're, okay, let's just say you got your paycheck and it was 12 times more than you expected. Man, they had to be mind-blowing. That, that, was, <laughs> that was one hour's of work for 12. I mean, 12 hours of work for one. I just, 
it blew him away. So uh, I can imagine now, in anxious anticipation, naturally the first workers are like, oh, we're <laughs> we probably can retire, right? <laughs> it's all done for us. We can just call it a week. I don't know, or at least 12 days when you do the math. They were fine with the wages, so the first workers were fine with their wages when they made the deal. Obviously, they went to work. They did the work. They were fine with it. But then they saw their other guy. The guy comes in and works the last hour, and he's getting paid the same? Are you kidding me? That don't seem right. So they began complaining and grumbling at the master. Really not a good idea if you want to get your, you know, work later that week. It's not a good idea at all. It says they were begrudging. And this word begrudging is like giving an evil eye. It's like this evil eye is like wishing a curse on somebody. It's like, like you want to f- hurt somebody. Like wishing death on somebody, a curse. But I'm sure nobody's got the evil eye, ever given the evil eye here before. I'm just trying to explain it so you know what we're talking about, right? Nobody's ever done that here, giving an evil eye on the roads and different places. The anger seems to be aimed at the master's generosity, though. Now, before uh, you get too hard on these all-day workers and their evil eye, and think about your own attitude. I can imagine, like, I just retired in January. I worked 25 years. Some kid comes along and works a year or two and leaves when I do and gets the same thing I do. I'm like, no way. I could have done this two years and then retired? Are you kidding me? How about you, Braden? What did you think? If you would, your dad comes in and says, all right, kids, if you, we're going to do the dishes. Everybody work and get these dishes done, and I'll take you for ice cream. And you're like, you're all in. And your sisters go off playing. <laughs> and you get almost all the dishes done. They put two dishes away. And then you get to go get ice cream. You're probably going to have a, like, are you kidding, Dad? I should get their ice cream, right? You can, you can relate to that. We can relate to that. We have an idea of what fairness is about, what, how things should go. It doesn't seem fair. You may, might be inclined to think you want justice, but um, not in this parable you don't want justice. Not in this story you don't want justice. So we can tend to react in a way that calls for fairness and justice. As one theologian put it, I like this, this was good. I I couldn't track down who said it, but here's what he said when it comes to justice. We are fools if we appeal to God's justice instead of God's grace. Because we know what justice gets us. But we know what grace gets us. And we choose grace. We'll choose grace every time. Somebody offends us, though, we want justice. But when we offend somebody else, we tend to want grace. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. But somebody else does something to us, we want justice. Pull them over. Where is there a cop when you need one? You know, there's something like that. Why isn't there some police around here when you need one? Or you, you know what I'm talking about. So, this is a different paradigm, isn't it? We don't want to be treated fair. Jesus is bringing up a different kind of kingdom. So what what is Jesus trying to teach the disciples and us to learn from this parable? I think I told you already, but we're going to go over it again. 
Serving God is a tremendous privilege. Entering the kingdom of heaven is not a competition. It's not a first, last, or in between. It's just in, just in. Get in. Get in the kingdom. Believe. Put your faith in. Trust Jesus. Everyone receives the full blessing of the heavenly kingdom. The last will be first, and the first last. This ties in what Jesus was telling Peter from his question in 1927. Verse 19. 27. While Peter and the twelve have left all of Christ, their priority does not gain them an advantage. They left everything, the family and those things. It didn't gain them an advantage, but it was a privilege. So I think about some of the things I think about are, okay, I I came to Christ at age 32, and I look back, I didn't even know there were such things as youth, youth groups. Joanne and I would have that. We're like, well, I didn't even know they had this stuff. And I look back and I'm like, I wish I could have got in on that when I was a young kid. If you ever, like, I'm going to tell you guys right now, if you ever feel like you're getting gypped off because you have to get, go to church or you're in this, it is such a privilege. I wish that I could have got in on that. But God's time is so- sovereign and God's time is perfect. Not, t- not taken away from that. Don't neglect the privilege of being in the kingdom. That's for us adults as well. We can look at it in such a way as like we take it for granted. We, can do, we got a privilege. We know the truth. There are so many out there who do not know the truth of the gospel, who are walking in darkness. We just got to invite them in. Number two, God's grace is extraordinarily awesome. It's abundant. It's huge. It's amazing. A hundredfold. The reward is a hundredfold. In verse 29, we read that the workers that worked one hour received 12 times more than they bought than they thought they'd get. 12 times more. I don't even think that does it justice. It's just the number he's using. It's just, showing that we're, it's just how it is a way of showing how much we gain from entering the kingdom. We're not, get, we're not getting shortchanged. There's no way we're going to get shortchanged. Jesus exclaims to the, to the uh, disciples that they're going to get a hundredfold. And then Paul, not Paul Harvey, Paul the apostle, speaking on our faith and power and glory of God, he says, What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. It's unimaginable, the blessings of the kingdom. Number three, God does for us what we cannot do. God's grace is not dependent on what we do or have done, but on who he is and what he has done. Ephesians 2, 4, and 9. Let me repeat that. God's grace is not dependent on what we do or have done, but on who he is and what he has already done, what he has done. Ephesians 2, 4 through 9. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive. God made us alive together with Christ. By grace, by grace you have been saved and raised us 
up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, you know it, for by grace you have been saved through faith and this not of your doing, it is a gift of God, not a result of works so that anyone may boast. It is a work of God. God does the work. God's grace is abundant and generous. There's no limit on his grace. You can't out-sin God. You can't out-give God. You can't out-work God. You can't out-do anything for God. God is, everything God does is abundant. It says in Ephesians 1, 7 through 8, In him we have redemption through his blood and forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished, that is abundant, lavished, upon us in all wisdom and insight. Point, no matter when you enter the harvest, no matter when you enter the kingdom, know this, you cannot earn it, you can't work it out. God's grace surpasses our expectations, our needs, and our sins. God's grace is abundant. So serving God is a tremendous privilege. God's grace is extraordinarily awesome. God does for us what we cannot do. And God's grace is abundant and generous. Now, so therefore, if you are in the kingdom, praise God and enjoy the privilege. Enjoy the privilege to labor in the kingdom Enjoy the opportunities you get to share the gospel. Seek opportunities to share the gospel. I used to be afraid to go out and do it. I, I can't believe it. Twice this week, I've like been able to share the gospel to these to um, the natives in the area who are really are broken. We were talking about today. You can see the brokenness. I just went out and went gave my testimony. I didn't used to do that. I used to be afraid. Do you start doing it? And God will just keep sending you people, I think. I believe he will. You just got to have the courage to go out there and do it. Just do it. Everybody's got a testimony. Everybody has a testimony. If you're in Christ. So don't miss the opportunity to share of God's extraordinary, awesome grace. It says in Matthew 9, 35 to 38. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages teaching them, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. The laborers are few. I think of many times that I just kind of held back because I didn't want to go into a situation where I might be uncomfortable or might not, the person might not smell right to me. And God sees these people with compassion. I just pray that God would give me eyes to see people as he sees them. Somebody witnessed to me 
I just kind of look too good over there, st- standing on my porch, having an alcohol problem and dealing with different things, screaming and hollering, acting like a fool. But somebody still witnessed to me. What keeps us from witnessing? I pray God would give us eyes to see. To see like he sees it. I pray earnestly that the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. To his harvest. This is this world isn't ours. This is the harvest field for God. And we hold back. Because we might look awkward or feel awkward or feel uncomfortable. Just pray God would give me the eyes to see all the time to see more because I still think I hold back too much. So if you're not in the kingdom, what about you? Or if you're not sure, think about it. What is it just saying? Jesus looks on us with compassion He sees our pain. He sees our affliction. He knows our helplessness. If we would only know our own helplessness, then we would turn to him. He is the good shepherd. He's the one who took our sin to the cross. He's the one who gave us perfect righteousness. Jesus did for you. He did for you and me what I could not do. He did for you what you cannot do for yourself. His grace is abundant. His grace is generous. So right here, in the, right where we're at, where we're sitting, just think. I would like, just close your eyes. Close your eyes and just think about the times maybe that you have been holding back, that you haven't looked on God's grace and mercy and seen others the same way. Maybe you're enjoying the privilege of serving in the kingdom, but you want to do more. Pray that God would give you strength to do more. Asking yourself, maybe, am I living in the joy of his awesome promises and future hope, or am I holding back? Or perhaps I've not recognized that God's grace at all. Maybe I haven't even recognized the abundance of his grace, his sacrifice on the cross, what he's done for me and what I cannot do. So I pray, Lord, I pray that if there is one here that is wrestling or struggling with salvation, one even hearing for the first time of your abundant grace, that you paid it in full, paid in full on the cross by Jesus, that your spirit would draw them to your salvation, that they would see you have done for them what they cannot do for themselves. And for those who have entered the joy of your salvation, I pray that we'd relish in the privilege to be harvest workers, bringing hope to the hopeless and a light into darkness, that the name of Jesus would be made known, that the name of Jesus would be glorified and lifted up. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org.